0: All right, good morning, Morning. good morning, good morning. If you would do me a favor, open up your sermon notes, pull out a pen, if you would even just humor me and attempt to convince me that you're taking notes um, because there's a lot of... fun, interesting, profound things that we're going to discuss this morning, and I want to tell you a little bit about how this morning will work. Um, We're going to finish the third week in our series on the Bible. The first week we looked at the canon of Scripture. Uh, Second week we looked at the inerrancy of Scripture, and today we're going to look at this Really big word called meta narrative, and uh, you're not allowed to check out yet, so just trust me. But then after the service, we are going to have a Palm Sunday celebration. Um, Our kiddos are going to be coming up here, and they are going to be um, worshiping and leading us in a song. It's very, very, very—actually, they're incredibly precious. You're going to absolutely love it. So if you've ever seen village kids come up and sing, it's it's pretty epically wonderful. Um, So often I am asked a question, usually by uh, inquisitive people— and they will say something like, hey, Michael, tell me your story. It's like the worst question you can ask me. Like I get stressed out immediately. And where, where do I possibly begin? I mean, if I went up to you and I said, tell me, tell me your story, how would, you, how would you begin to even tell decades of life in a minute or three minutes? And usually what I have to do is I have to start, I have to organize my story by the most significant moments of my life. Life, And so you'll find that every life, yours included, has these significant moments that redefine every single moment after that. I want to give you an example of this. Uh, When I married my wife, Brianne, uh, it was an epic moment in my life. Every moment from that day on has changed. In fact, everything that happens to me from that moment on cannot be understood without understanding my relationship to Brienne. Everywhere I go, there she is. It is one of these monumental, significant moments in my life. Another one might be um, the death of someone you love in your immediate family. It could be a mom or dad, a son or daughter, um, a husband or a wife. I mean, these moments are significant and they uh, redefine every single moment from that point on. These are significant moments. Another one might be moving out of state, leaving your family or your friends your church community, and having to start all over again. Maybe it's a major job transition. I mean, these are major moments. And here's what I think about when I think about my story. Um, These significant moments, I call them chapters. Um, They're chapters in the story that is my life. And every one of you have these chapters. Now, when you pick up the Bible, remember this is a series on the Bible, you need to understand something, that this is God's personal and emotional story that he is revealing himself to every one of you. And his story, I think, can be divided into chapters, significant events or relationships in the quote life of God, the history of God, that shape and help understand who he is and what he's doing. So now there are so many people in this room when you approach the Bible, you have no idea what to do with this book. You have no idea where it came from, where to start, what it means. Here's my goal this morning. My goal is very simple. I want to help you understand the Bible, its author, and its purpose just a little bit better, okay? I want to help you understand the Bible, its author, and its purpose a little bit better. You can say to me, amen, Pastor Michael. All right, you guys with me? Good. Just want to make sure you guys are fully awake and you're all here. So the Bible is God sharing his story. Whose story is the Bible about? God. This is not first and foremost about you or humanity. There are human characters that come and go, but who is the constant from the beginning to the end of the Bible? It is not you. It is, say with me, God. God. And so I want to come back to your story for a moment. The way you tell your story tells me so much about you. Most people tell our own story as if we are the main character in our story and as if our story is the most important story in all of the universe. Now, pop quiz, the person who thinks their story is the story, is the grand story, the most important story in the world, is called a narcissist. narcissist. You guys, it's like, were you in the first service? It was crickets during the first (laughs) service. I'm so proud of you guys. When you miss... When you, when you live as if your life is the most important story, I'm telling you this, you miss the point and the purpose of life. You miss everything. And so your story, I want to just honor you for a moment, okay? For those of you who are narcissists in the room, I want to honor you. You're important, sort of, to a degree. I mean, no, you're important, okay? You're important. But your story is a thread, one thread in the tapestry of God's grander, greater story. Your story is a thread and the grander tapestry of God's story. Yours is important, but it's just a piece of the puzzle. That's all it is. And if you live your life as if your tiny eeny weeny little thread is the point, you miss the point of the tapestry. You miss the point of life. Pop quiz, who's the main character in the Bible and the main character in all of life? His name is God, Jesus, same person. Great. Your story is a subplot. It is not the plot. I know for some of you, I've ruined your year, right? You thought... You are the most important person in the room, and you're not. Jesus always is. Uh, Your story is a subplot weaving in and out of a bigger, grander story. And if you are going to figure out the meaning of life, you need to know this. You're a supporting actor. You're not the lead role. You're a supporting actor. You're not the lead role. Somebody say with me. You're a supporting actor, not the lead role. So um, if you need to argue with me about that later, that's fine. Now, here's the end of history, okay? there is going to be one story told from beginning to end. There will be one grand story. And do you know who the author of that story is? It's going to be Jesus. Jesus wins. There are no other gods or powerful emperors or angelic forces that can possibly compete with him. At the end of the day, Jesus wins, he writes the history books, and anybody who stands up and tries to say, no, I am the most important person in the world, will be squished under his judgment, and they will lose, because who is the strongest, most powerful, most important person in all of the universe who wins and writes the final history of the world? His name is Jesus. He wins, right? He is the grand architect. He is the grand storyteller, and all of life and the Bible itself are fundamentally about him. So this, this brings us to the word of the morning, meta-narrative. Now, some of you, you're like, Michael, that's five syllables, and that is three too many for me. Like, my brain doesn't work past two, maybe three in a good day. Here's my promise to you. If you have a brain, and if you will use it, you can understand this word. Sound good? Are we in? Okay. All right. We're getting a little geeky, right? But you're going to be just fine. Okay. Meta very simply means all-encompassing. If you ever watch basketball, there's this um, really not-so-great former Laker named Meta World Peace. It's not his original name. His original name is Ron Artest. But he changed his name legally to Meta World Peace, which he's trying to say, basically, uh, all-encompassing world peace. Like, as if world peace wasn't enough. He's redundant. Now he's meta World Peace, okay? Uh, and so this, it's this idea of something that is all-encompassing. And then narrative simply means what? A story. So a meta-narrative is an all-encompassing story. It's a grand story that makes sense of all the smaller stories. Uh, I wanna give you an illustration of this. How many of you have seen or read Lord of the Rings, any part of it, raise your hand. Are the rest of you Christians? (laughs) I thought this was like a rule. If you're gonna follow Jesus, John's hand is still up. He's like, I read it and watched it multiple times. Now, if somebody were to look at you and say, what is Lord of the Rings all about? What would you say? Now, there are several answers you could give. Some would say it concerns individual people and their stories. Like there are orcs and elves, right? And they're important in the story. On another level that you might say it is a metaphor for the corrupting effects of sin. But there's a higher level of this. And here's the higher levels. What did Tolkien mean and intend for this story to tell us? What was his purpose in writing this? Now, I want you to imagine the orcs, right? They rebel, And all of a sudden, the orcs are like, no, I'm the most important part of the story, right? All of us would laugh, right? And Tolkien would say, well, I've obviously already written the end, so it doesn't matter what kind of rebellion you have now, because at the end of the day, do the orcs win? No, they lose. Every battle, they get slaughtered, they're weak, right? And so throughout history, there will be men and rulers and emperors and nations that rise up like orcs, convincing everybody they're more powerful than they actually are. But at the end of history, who wins? God does. So it doesn't matter who claims to be the most important or the most powerful. Jesus is the most important and most powerful. But in the same way, the Bible is not just a random collection of stories. This is where you say amen. Just say amen. Is the Bible random? No. No. Is it haphazard? Like someone was like, "Eh," you know, God picked out random stories of, of earth. No, the Bible is not a random collection of stories. On a higher level, you will see that a unity appears from beginning to end. And All of this comes together because God is communicating. God is orchestrating. He is telling one grand story that the Bible starts with in the beginning when creation was made, and it goes all the way to the end, which is the new heavens, the new earth, where all the Trinity happens. And the Bible is telling the story of God, Jesus, you can say the same thing, it's fine. The Bible is telling the grand story of life through which every other story, every individual life, every experience that you have is but a thread in the grander story. And when you miss that, you miss the Bible. You miss the point. If you approach this book, like it is a self-help book, and the goal of this book is to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy, you will absolutely, fundamentally, totally miss the point of reading the Bible. You will miss the meta-narrative, the all-encompassing grand story that God is telling through the story of God. So I wanna tell you as simply as I can the meta-narrative of the Bible, the big picture, the big story. I'm gonna break it down into something very simple and then we're gonna break it down to something a little more um, complex. Here's the meta-narrative, the big picture, the whole point of the Bible. You guys ready? Good. Give you a couple phrases. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. It is God revealing God. Okay? Number two, God is revealing himself, it's his self-revelation, to humanity through a chosen people. God is revealing himself to all of humanity through a chosen people. Here's the final part. For his glory. That's the big picture of what's going on here. Someone says, "What's the point of the Bible?" You say this: the Bible is the story of God revealing Himself to all of the world through a chosen group of people, so that He might get glory. I want to break this down personally. I see you guys in the back not taking notes. Uh, I'm just kidding. God, if you if you want to be a part of the meta narrative, the big story, the actual part of history that lasts for all of eternity, okay, on the winning side of the team, I want you to catch this. The Bible's written, the big story is that you might know God, you might give him glory through faith in Jesus Christ. When I'm talking to people who don't know anything about the Bible, here's what I say. Here's what you need to know. The Bible is about God revealing himself through a people to the entire world, that he might get glory. Here's how you respond, individual. Your response is to know God, because he's revealing himself, to give him glory with every part of your life. And how do you do that? You do that through faith in Jesus Christ. Will you ever, ever, ever be a part of God's big story if you try to be a part of it without faith in Jesus Christ? No. That the only way your thread will have any eternal significance and that your story will have any lasting significance outside of being um, part of the wrath of God is to, find that, is, is to do this. It's to simply come to Jesus by faith. If you don't come to Jesus by faith, you will never be a, a healthy, eternal, God-honoring, joyful part of God's meta narrative. If you wanna be a part of God's story, if you want your life to have purpose or significance, you must do it by coming to faith in Jesus. And when you do, here's what you'll realize, God is revealing himself and wants to be glorified. So we'll just summarize, I'm gonna say it over and over again. God wants to be known, he wants to be glorified, and that happens through faith in Jesus. Does God want to be known? Yes. Yes. Does God wanna be glorified? Yes. Yes. And how can you do that? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Does God want to be known? Yes. Yes. Does God wanna be glorified? Yes. Yes. And how does that happen? through faith in Jesus Christ. Am I redundant enough? All right. Does God want to be known? Yes. Yes. Does God want to be glorified? And how does that happen? Through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. So if you want your life to have any purpose, you will know God, glorify God, and you'll do it through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. That's the big big point of life. That's the big picture here, right? Now we're going to break this down and make it a, a little more simple, I think, but I want you to understand this. About meta narrative. Number one, three things. Number one, everyone in this room and on the planet has a meta narrative. You might say, "I don't have a meta narrative. I don't even know what it is." You have a meta narrative. I promise you this. Even though most people do not know it, there's one question that you can ask to determine what someone's grand story is, what they believe the most important story of all of, hum- of all the human race is. Here's the question: What is the purpose of life? What's the purpose of life? Ask that question. And you will quickly discern and determine what someone's meta-narrative is, what the grand story of their life is, what is the purpose of life. Village, Church, the purpose of life is to know, God. to give him Glory. through faith in. Jesus. You're so smart, this is great. Number two, most are unaware of their meta-narrative. It's like they've picked up a beautiful, engaging novel three-quarters of the way through it, and they have no idea what's going on. It's like their life is like they've parachuted into a foreign country, and they have no idea what language is being spoken, where they're at, or what's going on. And they're aimless and lost, and they don't have a clue about what's going on. Most people are clueless, and we as Christians enter in and we say, "Uh, uh, let me tell you exactly where you're at. You are in God's story and God's desire is for you to know him, to give him glory through faith in Jesus Christ. that, That is where you fit into this story. God is telling a story and his story is unfolding through history and the Bible tells us what happened in the past, where we came from, what's going on now and it even tells us what is gonna come next on the timetable of history. Uh, we are in the middle, at the very end, if you will, of the story, and it is not done yet. And people have no idea what is coming next. A good meta narrative has to tell us where we've come from, how we got here, what our purpose is, and where we're going. And the Christian meta narrative, the Christian story, the Christian explanation is beautiful, and it is compelling, and it is fundamentally different than every other religion or philosophy's attempt at explaining why we're here and what we're doing. Number three only one meta narrative can be true only one version of history can be true the atheist and the christian cannot both be right do you hear that your worldview that might say all truth whatever your truth is that's cool right it is illogical it's irrational it's insane i'm gonna tell you why because from the atheist perspective what happens when the christian dies unconscious nothing You cease to exist. Your consciousness goes away. You're just matter from dust you came to dust you go. And for the Christian, where does the atheist go? Hell for all of eternity and eternal conscious torment. Okay. So the Christian and atheist have two completely fundamentally differently opposing views of reality of metanarrative of story of where you came from, where you're at and where you're going. They both cannot be right the muslim meta narrative the mormon meta narrative the atheist world meta narrative the naturalist meta narrative i mean the marxist meta narrative the communist meta narrative the christian meta narrative they are all different and hear me only one will be right only one and our job is to figure out which one is right. And here, we're gonna see this in a moment. I believe that whatever made us is not leaving us scrambling and groping and trying to figure it out, but because he went to the extreme lengths that he went to to create humanity, I believe fully that he has clearly revealed himself. Um, Pop quiz, his name is? Jesus, you guys, it's like you're so smart. The atheist meta narrative says this, there is no purpose in life. There is no grand story. Your personal story is the meta narrative because all you have is you and your life. Live it up because you're going to cease to exist. The hedonist meta narrative says this the only purpose in life is to be happy. It's the only purpose pleasure and happiness. There's nothing else. The religious meta narrative every religion in the world, apart from biblical Christianity, shares the following meta narrative The purpose of life is to be good so you can get to heaven and happy while you're waiting to get there. Every single religion in the world apart from biblical Christianity says that be good so you can get to heaven and you can be happy while you're waiting to get there. And the biblical meta narrative is this, uh you my friend are broken. You cannot be good enough Your job is to know God, okay, number one. It is to bring him glory, number two, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ and not by your good works. You do not have enough good works to get yourself into heaven, to make right your brokenness. Uh, Pop quiz again. Have any of you ever changed your own heart? No, like try changing your heart. We have a fundamental sin issue which has corrupted our hearts. Try as you might. Your heart cannot change. You cannot save yourself. You need God to intervene and to change what you cannot do yourself. You cannot pay for your own guilt. You cannot cover your own sin. Only God can do that. And the Christian meta narrative makes sense of sin. It makes sense of suffering. It tells us the end and the beginning and it just happens to be logical, which I particularly love. But at the end of the day, One meta-narrative, one story will be written of all of history. It will be written by Jesus and every other meta-narrative that claims to be true, whether it's atheist or religious or whatever it is, they will be seen for what they are, subplots in God's grander story and they will be obliterated because God wins every time. And so here's what I wanna tell you, every story that you have that makes sense of the universe, if it is not the biblical story, will fail you and will lose. God is writing the story of history. He has already written the end, he wins. FYI, get on his team right now, way better. So when I'm talking to a non-Christian um, who doesn't understand the Bible, um, it's a very different world than what you, most of you in this room are understanding. I am finding that more and more, um, there is an absolute lack of knowledge whatsoever about the Bible. I am meeting people who have never heard that there is an Old Testament and a New Testament, okay? So kids are growing up, this is especially happening with whatever this post-millennial generation, we'll say zero to 15 or 16, are the most irreligious, unknowledgeable, they don't know anything about the Bible in all of history, okay? In terms of American history and Christian history, okay? These, they know nothing. So when I say, oh, the Old Testament, open up to the book in the Old Testament, they're like, what's an Old Testament? What's a testament? Why is it old? What's, they don't even know. And so what I have to do sometimes is sit down with people and say, all right, I don't want you to just parachute in because you're going to make a lot of mistakes. If you start reading Old Testament dietary laws and you think that those apply to you today, if you start thinking, oh no, we have to stone all these people and that's God's expectation and mandate, you're going to go crazy, right? You're not going to understand this. And so one of the things that I like to do is help people who have no idea what is going on here to help them know the meta narrative. Your job is to know God, glorify God through faith in Jesus Christ, and then help them open up the Bible and figure out what is going on in this book and how is God's story revealed through this book. And so what I want to do is I want to give you a simple understanding of how the Bible's organized. It's not the only way to look at the Bible, but what I've found is for this emerging generation who thinks in stories and has no knowledge of the Bible, this has been very, very helpful. Grandmas and grandpas, okay? You're going to have grandkids who may or may not know anything about the Bible, and this is something simple that you can open up with your kids and say, check this out, or your grandkids and say, let's think about this a little bit differently. So you've never heard of the Old Testament or New Testament. Let's walk... Through this. Now, the Bible, I think, can be thought of like a two volume drama. So you have Lord of the Rings, which is three, right? So think of it's one story told in two different volumes. And the first volume is the Old Testament. It's like you have notes in front of you. And the second volume is the New Testament. And they're very different from each other, okay? They are telling about different parts of the story, and you need to understand what's going on in each of these. But this Bible is structured so that with a little bit of insight, and I think a good study Bible, anybody can understand what is going on. Um, the Bible may feel large and difficult and complex, and on some levels it is, but anybody can jump in if they have basic understanding of the structure, the meta-narrative and a good study Bible, anybody can understand what's really going on. A 15-year-old can understand, a 7-year-old can understand. My little girl is 6, and she is able to understand some of these things, okay? And I think so often what we lack are the simple, comprehensive ability to just say, here's what the big picture is, and to find out what's going on in each book. So when you get to the beginning of the Bible, it says, in the beginning. I don't know about you, that drives me a little nuts, because I want to know what happened before the beginning, right? (laughs) So when I break up, when I, when I talk to non-Christians particularly about how the Bible's set up, um, I talk about what I call the prologue. And the prologue is before the beginning. So I want to ask you to humor me a little bit. I want to get a little geeky with you, okay? Can you get geeky with me? All right. All right. We're going to get geeky, and you want to write some of this down. Again, it's totally understandable, but uh, I want to know what happened in the beginning because here's what I know. The Bible teaches that Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, triune God, is eternally preexistent which means that he existed forever in the past. Or here's another way to say it. There never was a time when God was not. God has always existed. He's the uncaused cause, okay? Um, So the Bible starts off with, in the beginning, God. It starts off with creation. But what happened before this? I want to share with you something called the cosmological argument for God's existence. I love this. I think it's fun but it is a logical argument that defends the existence of God. And I'm gonna put on my Facebook a four minute video that actually summarizes this um, whole section in a really neat way. So you could actually um, pull this up with somebody and say, hey, watch this video, let's watch it together. This is really interesting, what do you think? And the cosmological argument has three simple statements that all build upon each other. Very simple, okay? So simple, it's going to blow your mind. You ready for it? Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Anybody's minds just explode? Right? So if my iPad began to exist, is it logical to conclude it had a cause? Right? This is not debatable. I mean, this is so simple and logical. If something begins to exist, it began because there's a cause to it. All right, we're good. Right? Everybody agrees. Number two, the universe began To exist. Now, for millennia, nobody challenged this, right? In the last few hundred years, uh, there's been a number of people who said no, the universe is eternally pre existent. It's always been here, or matter is all there is, or all of this just kind of came out of um, just random chance or whatever. The last 30 years though, especially the last 10 to 15, science is basically, I mean, any honest scientist is going to be able to say, uh, we know the universe has a clear and definite beginning. I want to share with you two things that we know. And uh, any of you heard the second law of thermodynamics, so it can get a little geeky. I'm not going to explain the whole thing to you, okay, but I'm just going to give you a little, right, little, little tidbit here. Here's one of the implications. Did you know that the universe has a limited amount of usable energy? So here's what that means. The energy in the world is burning out. And eventually, after a certain amount of billions of years, you know what will be left? Dark, cold, everywhere. That's it. That is the trajectory of the universe. All of the usable energy in the world is being burned out. Okay, that's kind of scary if you really just think about it. Like if you could be immortal, eventually you'd be immortal in black, cold nothingness. That's all. And so simply here's what it means is that if the universe were eternal, it would have ran out of energy a long time ago. But here's what that means. Because there's a finite amount of energy, we know that if you go back in time, there was a point where all of that energy began, all of it. So here's what we know. Energy is not eternal. It's burning out. There is a finite amount of it, and there is a point in which all of that energy began to exist, and now it is fading out and fizzling out slowly, but for real. Number two, the universe began to exist. The universe is eternal, uh, and what we all, I think, understand now is that the universe is expanding, Um, Now, I'm not going to sit here and give some kind of defense for any kind of secular worldview. I'm just telling you that what we know is that the universe is getting farther and farther and farther apart. Rewind, right? It comes back to a point where it had an actual beginning. And now people understand this. This is where the idea of the Big Bang came from, because logically they're like, well, the universe had a beginning, so it must come from that. Now we know in the Bible that the Bible tells us that the world began because God spoke it into place. Um, Hebrews 11 one says, we believe by faith that God did this um, because we weren't there to see it. We believe it because the Bible says it. But here's what we know is that the that, that creation, the universe had a beginning. Science knows this, everybody understands this. Now we're gonna blow your mind with the third point here, ready? The universe has a cause. Is that just anybody's, there's like spiritual brain matter everywhere. It just blew your minds, right? (laughs) Whatever begins to exist has a cause. True. The universe began to exist. We know this. And the universe has a cause. And I want to just share with you what this means, okay? Because whatever created the universe, space, time, energy, matter, is other than. It is outside of. Okay, and here's some of the things that we know. Whatever created it has to be beyond space. It has to be beyond time. It has to be beyond matter. It has to be beyond the scope of all potential energy because something that is less powerful can't create something that is more powerful than and of itself in these kind of circumstances. It must be conscious. Have you ever seen a Lego develop consciousness? Anyone? Have you ever seen something inanimate become sentient and conscious? Anybody? Anybody? Have you ever just like all of a sudden like the trays start walking like, Michael, what am I doing here? What's the purpose of life? How did I get here? Right? Here's a rule. Consciousness comes from consciousness. Conscious beings come from other conscious beings. Conscious beings never ever in the history of the world come from unconscious beings. There, there was not ever a moment when all of a sudden for the first time something said, out of nothingness I have thought. Right? That just doesn't happen. Here's what we know that we know. Consciousness begets consciousness. Okay, do you see that? If there's consciousness anywhere, it is because it has been formed by another consciousness. Okay, so we'll keep going. It is orderly. Whatever made this is outside of all of this stuff, and it is orderly because despite the chaos of space, when you get into environments like Earth, here's what we know. Another implication of the second law of thermodynamics is that nothing, all things tend towards chaos and disorder. If you build a home, and you make it all beautiful, and you walk away for a hundred years, will that home get more orderly? No, that's part of the implications of logic and science, is that everything in the world tends towards chaos and disorder. Well, then tell me, How did earth become so organized out of such chaos? It is illogical. It is impossible. Our very own scientific laws should tell us this is not possible. Something orderly was orchestrating and bringing order out of chaos. This isn't crazy. It's called use your minds. This is why the Bible says a fool says in his heart there is no God. And then finally, It must be uncaused. Eventually, there has to be one uncaused cause. So I want to read this back to you. What do we call a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, conscious, eternal, orderly, uncaused being? God. So we go before creation. And here's what I want you to get we make God in our own image because we don't have categories for anything else. God is beyond matter, He is beyond time, He is beyond space, He is beyond energy. He is different than anything and more beautiful and powerful and sovereign and large than anything our small little minds can understand. We are like amoebas trying to grasp the infinite complexity of a human being and how we work. And that does not even begin to describe the chasm between us and God. The Bible has a few words for these spaceless. Bible and theology, call it, we call it transcendent. Timeless, eternal, immaterial, we call spirit. Powerful, sovereign, conscious, alive. Orderly, holy, uncaused, self-existent. God said, Moses said, Who are you? He said, I am. I just am. I just exist. There never was a time when I wasn't. I'm Yahweh. I'm the Lord. Capital L O R D. I am. I am. And the Bible is the story, and this is where I think this comes back to what's really important. The Bible is a story, which all other stories find their place. This is the story of the spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, conscious, eternal, uncaused God, creating time and matter and revealing himself to a chosen species of conscious, a chosen species, conscious, made in his image and likeness for his glory. That's it. I mean, the Bible is not just some random book that a bunch of dudes compiled. The sovereign Immaterial, transcendent God has entered into space and time. is is giving us in words. I mean, how, how how humble of God to even try to use words to describe Himself to us, finite beings. And He is revealing Himself that He might be known, that He might be glorified through faith in Jesus Christ. So, prologue. Go to Volume One, Chapter One. Now we're going to get to in the beginning, and the rest of the sermon, it's going to fly. I've given you the categories. I've given you the framework. And we're going to kind of run through this. Um, And I think this is a helpful framework. Volume one is chapter one, creation. Any meta narrative has to answer this question. Where did I come from and how did I get here? Where did I come from? How do I get here? What is my purpose? I mean, these things need to be answered. And the question for me, when I read in the beginning, here's the question that I, I ask. What drove God to create time, space, energy, matter, and conscious beings? What drove him to do that? I'm going to give you the answer. That you might know him. That you might glorify him through faith in Jesus Christ. Wait, are you picking up what I'm putting down right now? Right. That you might know him. That you might glorify him through faith in Jesus Jesus Christ. Beautiful. So when you read Genesis 1 and 2, this is what's called creation. There are four chapters in the entire Bible where there is no sin amongst God's people. Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 2 at the very end of the Bible. Everything in between those four chapters is littered with disgusting and ugly sin. Everything in between. There are... Four chapters, four chapters dedicated to a sinless world, which shows that um, God is telling the story primarily of what's happening here and now in this broken world. But the first two chapters, I tell people all the time, start reading these over and over again. This will tell you the story of how God made the world, what uh, his relationship with humanity looks like, etc. Open up your Bibles with me. Genesis chapter one. You don't know where that is. It's the first book of the Bible and the first chapter of the Bible. Go to verse 26. It says this, then God said, let us, we now know this is the triune God self-dialoging, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Make love and make babies and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And verse 31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very, what's the last word? Good. There are a million facts you need to know about creation. I'm going to give you three that are really important for this. Number one, there is hierarchy in the created order. Who is the most important being in all of human history? God. Who is the second most valuable group of beings? Humans. Humans. Third, most valuable in the hierarchy, animals. Fourth, we'll call it non-sentient, non-conscious creation, plants, animals, the earth, the ground, okay? The Christian worldview understands that there is a hierarchy of value. God is more important than humans, but humans are more important than animals, and animals and life in general is more important than non-conscious life. The Christian worldview does not flatten out creation. You'll find a naturalist worldview. will look at you and say, animals are just as important as humans and trees have every right to life just as much as a person. By the way, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. Your intuition should know that, but the Bible right from the beginning reveals that no, all of it is important, but there's a hierarchy. God, humans, animals, everything else. Okay, That's number one. Number two, people are like God in specific ways. Three ways, number one, we rule, we create, and we relate. We rule, we create, and we relate. But number three, I think this is most important. God loves people passionately and uniquely in all of creation. Then when God looks at all of creation, he stops at people and he says, you are the most valuable, I love you passionately, I love you uniquely from all the rest of creation. Which brings us to volume one, chapter two. This is called The Fall. And the Christian meta narrative clearly and compellingly answers the question: Why is this world so jacked up? Why is my spouse and my kids so broken? But not me, of course. No I'm kidding. All right? Every every meta narrative, every grand story, has to deal with why sin is in this world and where it came from. And when you open up your Bible, chapter three is the event we call the fall. This is the first sin of Adam and Eve. And chapters 3 through 11 are written to reveal the event that happened and how devastating the effects were on that event for all of the human race. Chapters 3 through 11 seem to take up about 2,000 years of human history. And the goal of you reading this is to show this, that sin so corrupts and so breaks us that we turn into our worst possible selves apart from God changing us. I want you to read a couple of passages of scripture. Go to Genesis 3, verse 24. God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Once they sinned, they were kicked out of God's presence. And so here's what we know, that sin is not first and foremost a legal problem. It is a relational problem. You have been expelled, exiled out of God's very presence. And if you want to get back, you've got to go through a flaming sword, which will chop you to pieces. You can't get back. Right? And here's the question that, that now the Bible needs to answer. How do I get back into Eden? Okay? How do I get my relationship with God restored? How, do, how does this whole thing get made right again? And these, these chapters are going to show us that the problem is not just simply I have broken a law, but I am corrupt now because of sin, and God and I are not able to commune with each other, and he is far from me because of my sin. Look at Genesis 3-7. Like every human, we attempt to cover our own shame, and here's what it says. Then the eyes of both, Adam and Eve, were opened after they had sinned, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately, sin causes them to hide from each other, to hide from God. But God wanted to give them a better covering. God was not content with this loincloth. And here's what happens in verse 21 The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And I want you to hear what, happ- what happens here man is more important than animals. God heals an animal to cover man, and here's what he does in this process. He does what any great storyteller does. He foreshadows something greater that's going to be coming, and you will see this throughout all of the Old Testament, and we're going to watch this. The Old Testament is waiting and foreshadowing the greatest sacrifice in all of human history, which is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. So right from the beginning, right from the beginning, in this first chapter of the fall, the cross, this sacrifice is foreshadowed. And if you read slowly and patiently, you will see that Jesus is foreshadowed countless times throughout the entire Old Testament. Turn a couple chapters to Genesis chapter six, verse five. There's a problem that I find with most people when they read the Bible. They imagine God as non-emotional, very robotic, you have sinned, and therefore I must have a sacrifice that must die on the cross for your sins. It will be my son, right? Like very unemotional, very disengaged, okay? And here's what I want you to understand. The Bible is God's personal and emotional story. God is not emotionally neutral. In fact, you have emotions because you're made in his image, and he is trying to reveal about himself in the very way that you are made emotions in all. Listen to what happens in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, has sin thoroughly corrupted mankind. The answer is yes, but how does God feel about this? And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth. This is not a, I wish I wouldn't have done that. This is deep regret. I want you to watch how much. And it grieved him to his heart so that the lord said i will blot out man whom i have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for i am sorry that i have made them here's what i want you to understand about the fall Um, the fall is devastating the fall is a deeply emotional event for god the fall is not something god just sat back and said oh whoops i'll just send jesus and we'll resolve it later this is a story, a personal story of a God who has made you in his image so that you can understand that he is not just emotionless but deeply engaged and involved. Chapter 3, Volume 1, still under the Old Testament. I'll just call it Israel. Another name for this might be kingdom anticipation. What will God do about our brokenness? How will he get me back into Eden? So, Genesis chapter 12 introduces a man named Abraham, and Abraham is the father of a nation named Israel, and God is going to choose to work through this nation in Genesis chapter 12 all the way through the book of Malachi. The majority of the Old Testament needs to be understood in this context. This is the story of God revealing himself so that he might be glorified through a people, through a chosen people who is the nation of Israel, okay? And that's, you know, everywhere you read in these Genesis chapter 12, all the way to the book of Malachi, you're reading about a nation before Jesus. And honestly, when people open up the Bible, they don't know that. I have to tell them everything before the New Testament, it's about the nation of Israel, okay? Um, Jesus hasn't come yet. You may need to actually show people before Jesus, after Jesus, open it up and say, all this, this is all these years of human history in the last 2,000 years. This is what happened in the New Testament. You may have to actually open it up. But this section of scripture is written for three reasons, okay? Number one, to reveal God progressively through a nation. God did not dump all knowledge of him uh, about himself on humanity all at once. He progressively reveals himself, and he does this through a nation. Number two, you will see that this is all written to reveal or to illustrate humanity's severe brokenness. Uh, I I tell you, the Old Testament is jacked up. Crazy people doing crazy, disgusting, evil things, and even God's people are just so rebellious. And the reason it's there is so that all of humanity for all time knows we are broken, we are sinners, we are not fundamentally good, we are fundamentally rebellious against God. And that's why God spends so much time in this section. But number three, God wrote Genesis 12 through Malachi to prepare the world for a savior king through the nation of Israel. That God was going to prepare a savior king, a savior who would come and he would die on the cross and pay for their sins and inaugurate a new kingdom. Which brings us to the book of Daniel. I want to read one scripture and we'll go to volume two. The Old Testament is waiting, anticipating a king and a kingdom. They're waiting for the kingdom of God to rule over all the earth. And in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, it says this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And God's people from Genesis 3 to the book of Malachi, they're waiting. They're waiting for this king who is glorious and sovereign and who will rule. And then you get to volume two, which is the New Testament. Chapter one is redemption. When you read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the story of Jesus, the anticipated king who is coming. This is the story of redemption. God, the spaceless, immaterial, eternal, all-powerful, conscious, uncaused cause, takes on flesh, becomes one of us, and he deals with our sin for us because we cannot. This is the most important event in human history, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. No event was more catastrophic positively to the human race, to all of the world than this singular event. If I were to say what is the most important event in all of human history, I would say it's the series of events around the incarnation, the life, death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Every other worldview, every other meta narrative resolves the sin issue like this. Here's what they say. Be good, make God happy. Be bad, make God upset. I don't know about you, but I hate that. It drives me nuts. Another another way to say this is uh, whatever you want your meta narrative to be, whatever you want the grand story of life to be, you make it up. You are your own god. You make up your own story because all you have is this, right? Both of these failed. The Christian meta narrative is this: God wants to be known. And God wants to be glorified, and it happens only through faith in Jesus Christ, not by good works. No man can earn his way back to God. No man can get back into Eden on his own righteousness. No man can do this. We need God to do this for us. And the Christian meta-narrative is fundamentally different than every other religious meta-narrative. Every religious meta-narrative says, "Be good." Every one of them. There are even some perverse versions of Christianity that say, "Be good." Be good, you get to heaven. Do this, you get to heaven. And God comes in and says, you can't do it. You can't do it. You, there, you cannot get back into Eden. You try taking on that flaming cherub with that sword going back and forth. The only way that you can get in is if Jesus says, uh, he's covered, he's clean, co- he's with me. That's it. There's no other way to get back in. And so we have this redemption which happens through the cross. And the king has finally come. But we're going to see as we celebrate Palm Sunday here in just a couple minutes here— How is it the timeless, immaterial God of the universe, the king of the world, is letting himself be executed by his creation? This just doesn't make sense, which shows that God is not like all of the other perverse kings in this world, affected negatively by sin. When you come to Jesus, you're coming to a king, and you're coming to a kingdom. And this brings us to the second chapter, which is the church. I also call this the growing kingdom. There's two, I think, metaphors that I love that describe the church. One is a mustard seed. It starts out small, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The other is leaven. The kingdom of God is like leaven, very small, but it affects the whole loaf. And so what we find is with Jesus is that the kingdom is inaugurated, and that it starts small and it grows and it grows and it grows. We're 2,000 years later. The majority of you are not Jewish, and yet so many of you in this room have given your life to Jesus Christ. Is the kingdom of heaven growing on earth through people? The answer is absolutely. And then finally, the last chapter is recreation, where God remakes heaven and earth, eradicates sin, and he makes the world as it should be. And you get to the last two chapters of the Bible, and that's what this is about. It is making right what all of the rest of the Bible, between chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and Revelation 21 and 22, it is making right what we have absolutely destroyed and obliterated. It is the story of the king coming back to judge the heavens and the earth, the living spiritual beings and inaugurating a kingdom on earth that will last forever and ever and ever. I want to close with this and uh, just to give you just a step back for a moment. The Bible is not just any book. It's the story of the spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, conscious, eternal, uncaused God revealing himself in space and time that we might know him and glorify him through faith in Jesus. The Bible is not simple like a storybook, but rather it is nuanced, it's thrilling, it's complex, it's filled with numerous subplots and twists and turns. Personally, I would expect the greatest storyteller of all time and beyond to tell nothing less than the greatest and most interesting story. The Bible is not a self-help book. Somebody give me an amen on that. Not only is it infinitely more engaging, unpredictable, and exciting, but it is the story of God. It is the story that makes sense of all other stories. And when all is said and done, it will be the only enduring story. The Bible is God's story from beginning to end and beyond, centered in Jesus, God in the flesh, who is coming back to finish the story and bring the kingdom of heaven fully to the earth. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, first and foremost, I just want to say thank you for not leaving us groping and desperately trying to figure out where we came from, where we're going, what the purpose of life is, but you have powerfully revealed yourself with clarity in the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, you want to be known, you want to be glorified through faith in Jesus. And so God, my prayer is that every single thread in this room, every person's story would not be meaningless, but would fall in line with the greatest story, the only story, your story. God, that our lives would not be meaningless and purposeless, but would find purpose and that we know you and bring you glory through faith in Jesus. God, I pray that as we encounter children and grandchildren and friends who do not know the Bible, they do not know how to understand this, that we would be equipped to give them even just a simple framework that maybe in a couple minutes or in a half hour, we could help them understand what is going on because there's too much at stake to not know. So thank you for revealing yourself that we might bring you glory through faith in Jesus Christ. We love you and worship you. And all God's people said, amen.